your Bible, we have a hand up Bianca and she'll, uh, she'll make sure you have one. And you can turn to Psalm 13, Psalm 13, which I think is on page 453. I'm going to read the whole Psalm. It's a short one. Psalm 13, let's hear God's voice together. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long? shall my enemy be exalted over me. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep in the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so reads God's word. I wasn't going to preach Psalm 13. And we were going to take a break from these Psalms we've been doing. Kind of, we started at one and we'd gone all the way through. But what, what there is in the, early cha- in the early Psalms is a lot of lamenting. There's a lot of fairly depressing, well, fairly depressed people and fairly depressing sort of language. And we'd already done a series in Ecclesiastes, which is all about the futility of life. And I just thought, you know what? One of the things that we could really do with is a bit of a break from lamenting. So I was going to preach Psalm 20. Psalm 20 is a, uh, a, a prayer of victory. It's much more uplifting. Uh, it's much more uh, buoyant. It's a bit of a feel-good psalm. It's about, uh, about the king riding into battle and all of his people saying, you know what, I hope the Lord blesses you in that. It's a, real, it's a victory psalm. It's a royal psalm. That's what I was going to preach, and that's what I spent most of my week thinking about. And then I woke up on Friday morning and BBC News had been sending me updates on my phone during the night saying that a guy got into a truck in Nice and he had driven for two kilometers mowing people down and that 84 people were dead. That 50 people, many of them children, were in a critical state in the hospital. And as much as I would like to preach a feel-good psalm, I can't, not this week. Psalm 13 is very, very fitting. A quick search online reminded me of five major attacks in the last two months 
And actually, one of the things that struck me is like, oh yeah, I forgot about that one, because the next one keeps on coming so quickly. Bangladesh, 28 people dead in a restaurant. Baghdad, 179 people killed in the street in a suicide bombing, 179. Orlando, 50 people shot dead in a nightclub. Istanbul, 42 people killed in an airport. Nice, 84 people killed as they celebrated Bastille Day. And then on Saturday, you have, you know, you just, you have a coup in Turkey, because that's what they do in Turkey of the weekend. And 200 people are dead. That's 583 people gone. And those are just the ones that have been reported. Our world is profoundly broken. One person on Twitter I saw put it really well. He's a pastor, a guy called Ray Ortland. He put it this way. He said, our world is on fire. And if you don't think it is, you're not paying attention. He goes on to say that, that if you're at a church that doesn't think that the world is on fire and isn't preaching the gospel into that brokenness, then you need to go to a different church. And so I couldn't preach Psalm 20 today. The world is on fire. The world is broken. And one of the most common human reactions in the face of such tragedy is to ask the question, where is God? Where is He? We feel His absence. We feel His distance, don't we? It's funny. There's a kind of there's a progression in these few psalms that we've done. Psalm 11, which we did two weeks ago. Psalm 11 is all about unshakable confidence. You know, uh, David's, David's friends are saying, you need to get out of Dodge, David. You're going to get killed. And he's going, I ain't going anywhere. You know, there's this unshakable, resolute stability and confidence about David's person. And then Psalm 12, which we looked at last week, is David, kind of, he's looking around, and it's almost like he's beginning to shake. He's saying, it looks, like, it looks like there's nobody left in the world who fears you. Like, what's going on? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in your word. I'm going I'm to keep on, I'm going to keep on uh, trusting in you and keeping my faith in you. But it seems like there's a kind of a almost like a, a destabilizing. And then we get to Psalm 13, and Psalm 13 has the, this, this four times repeated question of, how long, O Lord? Where are you? It seems like you've gone. It seems like you've left us behind. Psalm 11, unshakable confidence. Psalm 13, deep fear and uncertainty. Isn't it funny? This is a time for each. This is a time when we feel, do you know what? I know that this is really hard, but my, my faith is strong and I'm, I'm, I'm going to push on through. And then there are times when you find yourself much more in a Psalm 13 sort of frame of mind and you're thinking, has God abandoned me? One of the really beautiful things about the Bible is that it gives voice to both 
to both seasons and everything in between. That it's not just all about, you know, the stiff upper, the stiff upper lip. But it's not all about turning to jelly either, that there's a time for both. Isn't it good that God in his goodness gives us a vocabulary for both of those frames of mind? That we have Psalm 13 as well as Psalm 11. Psalm 13 is very real. I think it resonates deeply with our experiences. It's earthy. It's very human. It's very human in the face of these tragedies to ask, what on earth is going on? Where are you, God? How long? It's about a guy who can't see all the reasons. He can't see all the whys. And he's reaching out to God for help. You ever do that? You don't know why something's happening. You don't know what God's doing. And you're reaching out to him for help. Haven't you been there? Haven't we all been in a place where God seems to have hidden himself behind a cloud? Whether it's because of suffering in the world or whether it's because of tragedy in our own lives. Or perhaps some people, and I've met them, like some of you might here just find it harder to kind of feel a sense of God's presence. It's just not something that you really interact with. It's just God often feels distant to you. That's just a just part of your makeup. How are we going to interact with that? Well, hopefully Psalm uh, 13 will help us. So, first of all, one of the questions that we're going to ask is, uh, what are some of the responses that people have when God seems absent? What are some of the responses that people have when God seems absent? First response is that some people feel God's absence and conclude that it's because God wouldn't want anything to do with them. That it's because of something within them that God has distanced them himself. Either they're too broken or too sinful, too dirty, too messed up. Think, well, God wouldn't want anything to do with me anyway. So it's no wonder I don't feel him close to me. Certainly in verse 2 in this psalm, there is, a, there is an inner turmoil. There's this inner reflection, this inner searching. He has sorrow in, my, in his heart all the day long, but he's still running to God and crying out to him, not running away. Now, let's be honest for a second by way of caveat. If you're living a life and you know, that you're, you know that you're wandering from God, you know that you're not living as you should, you know that you're sinning, and you're kind of okay with that, and you're just kind of doing your own thing, and then wondering why God feels distant, there's a reason for that. It is hard to consciously, deliberately, sin, and then sit down and pray. It just doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't happen that way. So, of course, if you're in unrepentant sin, God's absolutely going to feel distant from you. You're not going to feel his good fatherly pleasure over your life. However, generally speaking, in circumstances, if circumstances lead us to conclude that God seems absent or distant, Generally speaking, we should not conclude that it's because he doesn't value us or care about us 
or love us. He's drawn near to this world with all of its mess. Think of the most famous verse in the Bible. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16. How does John 3.16 go? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we think, isn't that brilliant? Isn't that great? God so loved the world. But why is that brilliant? Why is it great that God loves the world? Well, and this is kind of a bit of an aside, but in John's gospel, the, the word world has a really specific, particular meaning. It's not referring to geography. It's not referring to the, to the spinning ball. That's not what it means. It's a moral word. When John uses the word world, he's talking about the sinful, broken, messed up mess messed up mess, you know what I mean, that he's talking about all of humanity arrayed against God in enmity and violence. That's what he's talking about. And God loves it, for God so loved the world. He loves this broken, sinful mess that we find ourselves in, and He draws near to it in His Son, the Lord Jesus, and He rescues it. So, we cannot possibly conclude that if God feels absent, it's because He couldn't possibly love me. He loves us in our brokenness, despite it. So, what's so amazing about John 3.16? It's not amazing because the world is so big. It's amazing because the world is so bad. So we should not conclude that. What's the second response? Second response is that some people see God's apparent absence and conclude, therefore, that he doesn't exist or that he's dead. Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, great uh, atheist philosopher, God is dead. Some people conclude that he doesn't exist or that he's dead. Eli Weissel uh, was a uh, was a young Jewish boy in Auschwitz. And he saw some terrible things, and he wrote uh, an account of his life uh, in the book Nacht, Night, which you can go and read and download it on Kindle and Amazon, yeah, wherever you want. Anyway, Eli Weissel. One day, he recalls this story of uh, how the guards uh, hanged a young boy in Auschwitz, not much older than him, and as the crowd stood watching the life ebb out of this young boy, one of the men behind him said, where is God? And Weissel recalls that in his heart, he thought, he's there. He's on the gallows. It's a very striking, moving piece of literature. God is there on the gallows. He's dead. He couldn't possibly be in a place like this. The tragedy of the Holocaust is so unspeakable that God must be dead or he would have stopped it. In this scenario, if we conclude this, in this scenario, our only avenue, the only avenue left to people is 
is self-reliance, self-healing, fixing it yourself, self-control, self-rule, self-salvation. There's nothing outside of yourself to run to. And where does that often lead us? That often leads us, frankly, to despair. If humanity is fundamentally broken, but we have no help outside of humanity, then aren't we aren't we doomed to to circle around this this cul-de-sac of futility and frustration? If humanity's broken, but all that there is to help is humanity? Moreover, if God does not exist, and all that there is is the blind indifference of the universe, then the suffering that you go through really is purposeless. It really, really doesn't matter. And the suffering that you see outside of yourself, why would you get annoyed about it? Why would you grieve? Why would you be sad? It's the universe doing some housekeeping if there is no God. Why grieve it? It's just blind indifference. The third response is that some people get angry, they get resentful, they get bitter. We know people like that, right? We know people who have been dealt such a bad hand in life that it just profoundly affects them. They become, they become twisted forms of their former selves. It saps their joy. They don't know what it is to smile or to laugh anymore. Many never recover. And what happens, therefore, is that they shut themselves off from the world, from friends, from community. And actually people distance themselves from them because they're not nice to be around three possible responses. To conclude that God wouldn't want me, to conclude that he's not there, or to become bitter and resentful. David doesn't go down any of those avenues. He plots a new course for us. How does he respond? How does he respond in these verses? First, he responds honestly and forcibly. You know, normally you kind of think, I'm approaching God, I have to be very, you know, I have to be very deferential and very reverent, and I've got to make sure that I use my big theological words and make sure that I, I punctuate every sentence with Lord. Uh, you know, you go to those prayer meetings, don't you? And everybody's like, uh, you know, Lord, I just thank you, Lord, that you, Lord, you know, it's... Why would you do that? You would never speak to another human being like that. You'd never say, uh, hey, Killian, would you, Killian, please, Killian, go and get some Killian, some milk, Killian, just, just go and get the milk, Killian, thanks, Killian. Like, you think it's weird, but we think that we have to become really reverential and, uh, and that we can't actually honestly express how we feel to God. But that's exactly what we see here in Psalm 13, four times. David cries out to God, going, how long? I want to know how long this is going to go on for. I want to know the schedule, God. In verse 3, 
It should be, it should be exclamation points after the first word. It should be, consider, answer. That's how, that's how it's written. It's, it's consider, look, answer, act. It's forcible. The thing to note here is that you can be honest with God. I know that sounds like a simple thing, but many of us aren't. God is big enough for your honest questions. God's big enough for your frustration. God's big enough for your pain, for your sadness. Go to God with honest prayers. Why would you try and fake it with the one that knows everything anyway? It doesn't really make sense, does it? God is big enough for honest prayers. Second thing that David does is that David clings to the relationship that he's in. You see that in verse 3, after he says, consider, after he says, and answer me, we have this little phrase, O Lord, my God. It's not just that, that, uh, that God is some, some distant deity. He's saying, you are the Lord with whom I am in relationship with. We are bound together. I need you to act. I know that you're there, so I'm not getting swept away and concluding that you don't exist. You have bound me. You have united me. You have joined me to yourself, and now I need your help. He clings to the relationship that he's in. He claims that relationship. The third thing that he does is that he actually asks God to intervene and to change his circumstances. You see that in, again, verse 3, verse 3b, this little phrase of, light up my eyes. Light up my eyes. It's kind of... um, you talk about somebody, uh, somebody looking, uh, somebody looking bright-eyed, brighten my eyes. It's a, it's a change my circumstances. It's that that I might look happier. That people might look at me and know that things have changed. Light up my eyes, change my circumstances, intervene. How many of us, when we're going through, uh, through times of trouble or suffering, we kind of we expect God to do something, but we never actually ask Him. We kind of just grin and bear it and then get a little bit resentful when He doesn't act. Or become bitter when we just complain to God. You see, experiencing suffering often has a lot to do with changing us. Experiencing suffering often has a lot to do with changing us. It's often why it happens. It changes who we are. And aren't we changed when we look outside ourselves for solutions, when we look outside ourselves for answers, and we actually bring to God the problems that we are in? I know that I've done this, and I'm sure you have too, that, that I've, been in a, I've been in a time of trial and I haven't actually prayed about it. I haven't actually specifically gone to God with that problem. 
And maybe it might well be that he's waiting for me to pray, to come to him, to look outside myself for the fix, for the answers. The fourth thing that he does is that he looks back. He remembers how God has helped him in the past. We sang, uh, Come Thy Fount, uh, just before I got up here, Come Thy Fount has a uh, has a really odd phrase at the start of the second verse. It says, here I raise my Ebenezer. Uh, if, you're only, if you're only learning English, Bianca, you probably have no idea what an Ebenezer is. You're like, gosh, what is that? It's nothing to do with a Christmas carol. It's nothing to do with Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge. It's, it's not that. What's an Ebenezer? It comes from, uh, uh, from 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 7, uh, where... Uh, the Israelites had just won a battle against the Philistines. And what Samuel does is he sets up a rock of remembering. And that rock of remembering in the old Hebrew is called an Ebenezer. Basically, it's saying that what I'm doing is I'm setting up this great big whacking pillar so that every time you pass by it, every time you look at it, you'll remember what God has done for you on this day. That's why the second line of the song, it's, so it's, here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come. So when you sing those words, in that moment you're thinking, God's helped me this far. I gain strength from that. I'm raising my Ebenezer right now, saying that God has helped me. That's what it means. And that's what David's doing here. He's saying, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. He's thinking back to when God has helped him in the past. I have trusted in your steadfast love. He's looking beyond his current predicament and recalls what God has done for him previously. And isn't that so important for us? Because we often see God's help in hindsight. You might be going through a period of trial or suffering now and wondering where God is, but actually, a month, two months, a year down the line, you'll look back upon it and think, do you know what? I actually see God working in my life there. I see how God was helping me there. I didn't at the time, but I see it now. Or you can look back at instances in your life right now and think, do you know what? That's absolutely right. There's a time where I had no idea what I was going to do. And now I look back and I think that actually God has really helped me. How much more for us on this side of the cross and resurrection? That that's what we can look back to. If we feel abandoned by God, if we feel deserted, if we feel like He's run away from us, if we feel like we've been left to our own devices, where do we look? Yes, we might look to past experiences, but we ultimately look back to the cross of the Lord Jesus. That is where we get our strength. He was faithful to us in the salvation of the world. Surely he will be faithful to us in our trials, in our sufferings. Fifth, he renews his trust in the Lord, verse 6. So having said, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Steadfast love, by the way, steadfast love, it's a particular word. It's his It's his covenantal love. And we don't talk about covenants really anymore. Uh, but think, think legally binding. Think kind of law document. 
Uh, it's that sort of strength. It's not, an, it's not simply an emotional affection. It's a, it's a I, have bind, I have blood bound myself. I have vowed, I have pledged myself to you. It's that sort of love. It's akin to, uh, it's akin to a marital love. It has both affection and legal force. So when, uh, when David is drawing strength from the steadfast love, he's talking about this, uh, this love that, that couldn't possibly be broken. This promise, this covenant, this vow that God has taken. Fifth, he renews his trust in the Lord. Having looked back, he says, I will, I, I will, not, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He doesn't go away despondent. He knows that his prayers have been heard. He knows that while things are still difficult, that he will act in faith and trust God. And he'll sing again. I know again it might sound like a really simple thing, but that's one of the it's one of the most profound things that you can do, particularly when you feel abandoned, when the world seems very dark, to sing the promises of the gospel can be a really moving thing. It can be a real act of faith to sing words that you don't feel right now, but that you want to feel. A couple of months after I moved, to Dublin, which is about four years ago now. A couple of months ago, sorry, a couple of months after that, it was November time. Some good friends of mine, they lost their daughter. She was 14. She died in tragic circumstances. And we were all at the funeral. The funeral was absolutely packed and it was awful. I actually don't even really like to think about this but it illustrates the point. At the end of the funeral, as they carried the casket, the song that they sang was In Christ Alone, which we're going to sing. They sang, In Christ Alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Everyone in the church, everyone, was asking where is God? Where is God in this? And singing those words was an act of faith. It was an act of trust that even in the darkness, He is my light, my strength, my song. You know, to sing the words of those last, that last verse, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the love of Christ I stand. That even in the midst of questioning, even in the midst of utter frankly, demonic darkness to sing those words did all of our souls good. It was an act of faith that even in the darkness, He is my light, 
that he's still Lord, that he still keeps us in his love. That ultimately is the hope of the gospel. That in God, Jesus Christ, sorry, that in Jesus Christ, God has dealt bountifully with us as the psalm ends. God knows our suffering. He knows what it's like to feel abandoned, and not in the way that God God knows everything anyway. There's a profound sermon point for you there. Everybody note that down. God knows everything. But not in that way. God knows what it's like to suffer. God knows what it's like to be abandoned, not in the general sense of knowing everything, but because he stepped into human history. He became a man. He walked our road. He carried our cross. And on the cross, he cried the words of Psalm 22, which begin, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? He cried those words so that we might never have to. He was placed in the sleep of death on our behalf that we might be brought into relationship with the living God, a relationship that will never end, a relationship that goes forward to that time that we thought of at the start of the service where every eye, every tear from every eye will be wiped away. And so, we can say with the, with the poet William Cooper, William Cooper was, was a man who struggled with, with manic, sorry, not manic, chronic depression his entire life. He tried to take his own life on a number of occasions, and he eventually succeeded. He was friends of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. You know that song? He's good friends of John Newton, this guy William Cooper. He had some very dark days. And he wrote the poem, uh, the Lord works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. You know that one? Uh, one of the verses goes like this. He says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Do you get those last two lines? Let me read them again. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Things might look like God is frowning at you, but he hides a smiling face. And one day that smiling face will beam at you and he will wipe away every tear. I look forward to that day. I'm sure the people of Nice and of Baghdad and of Bangladesh and of Istanbul And of Orlando, they look forward to that day. So, as we conclude, how might we regain a sense of the presence of God very quickly? First, voice your complaint. Give it voice. Don't keep it inside your head. Give it voice. Don't pray inside your head, even if you might have to go to a room and close the door and sound like a weirdo. Voice your complaint. If you're angry at God, if you're questioning God, take your questions to Him. If you prefer to journal, that's your thing. If you like to write things, if you just like stream of consciousness typing, do that. Get your complaint, your frustration 
out of yourself and either onto a page or simply out into the, out into the air. Voice it. Let it out there. Second, get out of yourself. After you get the words out, get out of yourself. Do you know, what, do you know why? Because people who are going through suffering and trial, they become more and more and more curved in on themselves. They become more and more insular and obsessed about their own problems. One of the best things that you can do if you're going through a hard time is to forget yourself. How do you forget yourself? By looking to others. By serving others. By considering the needs of others. Isolation breeds a sense of abandonment. We experience the goodness of God in the lives of others as we serve others and we allow others to serve us. The worst thing that you can do is shut yourself off. And that's the final thing that I will say is find comfort in the community of faith. The worst thing that you can do is run from us. When you feel like God is distant, there's a family here to lift you up to walk with you in that, to mediate Christ to you. When you can't feel the closeness of God, allow us to be Jesus to you, to serve you, to point you to Him. Don't run away. It's the worst thing you can do. We will all go through seasons like this. We'll all go through times when when God feels like he's hiding behind a cloud. And we'll all need to remind one another of these truths. But by the grace of God, we will journey together to that great day when we see him face to face and mourning and pain and crying are no more. That's what we look forward to. That's what we rejoice in. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those of us in the room who perhaps this is hitting a little close to home right now. Perhaps they're tempted to to think that you don't love them or that you're not there at all. That they can feel themselves becoming angry or resentful or bitter. Father, would you draw close to them, particularly this morning? Would you remind them of your presence? Would you remind them of how you have acted to save them in the past? And would they draw comfort from that? And we pray, Father, that all of us would be uh, looking to the needs of others, that we would be helping and shepherding one another along this, this journey this life that we live, would we be showing Christ to one another? We ask it in his name. Amen.